0: So one of the things I find really exciting about, especially S1, our first standard, is that it's bringing all of these accounting concepts to the topic of sustainability disclosures in a way that I think will drive more confidence in the data as the data and the information and the descriptions all improve as a result of applying these accounting concepts to this topic.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, and today we're interviewing a Wharton alum at the heart of building out the infrastructure that investors need to incorporate climate and sustainability into their decision making. She's Elizabeth Seeger, a full time board member with the International Sustainability Standards Board, the global standard setting body for sustainability reporting and financial disclosures. Now, regular listeners are going to remember our interview from earlier this year with Luis Amaral of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is working on developing standards and best practices around climate ambition, that is, around companies setting targets for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. The ISSB is doing similar work for sustainability disclosures, what companies share with the financial community about sustainability-related aspects of their business, from climate to biodiversity and beyond. You can think of it a bit like financial accounting, but specifically for sustainability. And in fact, the ISSB is part of the IFRS Foundation, which is the body that sets the accounting standards used in most markets outside the US. Now, a brief writer before we start, Elizabeth's comments represent her personal views and opinions and not those of the ISSB or the IFRS Foundation. Let's dive in. Hi, I'm Ned Downey. Welcome to The Wharton Current today. My guest today is Elizabeth Seeger. She has over 20 years of experiences in standard setting, investment, and working on sustainability topics, and she's currently part of the board of the International Sustainability Standards Board, part of the IFRS Foundation. Elizabeth joined the ISSB, International Sustainability Standards Board, and from KKR, where she was managing director for sustainable investing. And before joining KKR in 2009, she had served as a project manager in the corporate partnerships program of the Environmental Defense Fund. And she also worked in consulting. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining the Wharton Current. Thank you,
0: Ned. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it.
1: So let's start with a question that we always like to ask. Tell us about your career and what brought you to becoming a board member of the ISSB?
0: Well, as I reflect back and and think about my education and also my different career opportunities over the years, I think one of the things that was definitely a theme that wound its way through all of those roles was the one of measurement, disclosure, and and really language. And in fact, my Wharton application essay back in 2002, 2003, whenever I wrote it, was really about the fact that I understood the language of the environment. And I really wanted to go to Wharton to learn how to speak the language of business, because I believe that this common language was really critical for companies to understand how their businesses interacted with the environment and depended on the environment in a way that was compelling for those businesses and their investors. I ended up really pursuing that theme for the future years and ended up most recently at the International Sustainability Standards Board, where I am one of 14 independent board members that spend all of their time really writing and maintaining standards that enable companies to communicate information on all of their sustainability-related risks and opportunities. So really a long and curvy way of getting here, but still very consistent with this idea that we all need a common language to better understand the way that businesses interact with and depend on the natural environment society in which they operate.
1: I love it. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm really excited to bring you on is that as someone who's worked on sustainability standards for some time in my own research, I know that it can be a real maze of initiatives and acronyms, and the ISSB has a really interesting role in that, which you kind of have hinted at described already, but just tell us more about what the ISSB does, how you guys are trying to bring order to the sustainability standards maze.
0: Maze is a good word for it. Many of us spend our entire day jobs just trying to understand the maze of acronyms and frameworks and expectations out there. And so how can we possibly expect company leadership and their investors to understand these topics and navigate them in any sort of way when it's not their full-time job to do so? So a maze is exactly right. And I think the ISSB, one of the reasons why I was excited about the ISSB, was that just through its very formation, it started helping streamline this very complicated landscape of sustainability-related disclosures. And it itself was a consolidation of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, of which I was a part for many years, the integrated reporting framework, and also the CDSB, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. And also it built its standards, which we can talk more about, of course, on the framework of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or the TCFD, which not too long ago, earlier this summer, announced that basically the TCFD felt like it was finished with its role and was handing over the future monitoring of of the TCFD implementation to the ISSB. So in this way, uh, already there's a consolidation in the investor-facing disclosure frameworks out there in a way that I believe will make it a lot more streamlined for companies that are reporting on these topics, but also for investors who are trying to navigate information in a meaningful way. So I think that's a really important outcome.
1: Basically, you're developing a internationally applicable standard baseline around what sustainability disclosure should look like. And in doing so, trying to unify all of these different Frameworks and acronyms, or at least develop something that's accessible to companies from around the world and to investors from around the world. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you sort of said this in your last point, but this is really focused on investor relevant information. And as you know, there's a lot of other stakeholders that want and require sustainability related information from companies. But there's been just a lot of confusion around how do companies communicate to investors that the ISSB plays an important role in that particular aspect of the disclosure landscape.
1: Totally. And specifically, what you guys are is a board, but the board is part of a broader organization here. So could you describe the org structure here? What is the board's role exactly in it? And what other pieces are part of this effort to create these standards?
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned the IFRS Foundation, which frankly, before a year ago, I wasn't even familiar with as somebody who hasn't done much as it relates to financial accounting myself and certainly is based in the U.S. in particular. But the IFRS Foundation or the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation has been around for a couple of decades with a standards board called the International Accounting Standards Board. And the IASB has been writing accounting standards for countries around the world for, like I said, a couple of decades now that are now used in, I think, over 140, although I've heard 160 different jurisdictions worldwide uh, for for companies in those jurisdictions for financial uh, disclosures. And so, a couple of years ago, with the formation of the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, it is now a sister board of the IASB. And why I find that really exciting as a practitioner myself is two reasons. One is that, as I mentioned now, the IASB has been writing accounting disclosure standards for a couple of decades now and therefore has a road-tested, established, rigorous due process for developing and maintaining standards in a way that really takes into account the major stakeholders in the marketplace. And the second reason being that because of this, the organization has very deep jurisdictional relationships with jurisdictions around the world and their financial regulators that will provide a really important method for adoption in a regulatory way of the ISSB standards in many places around the world. And that really is critical for us to achieve what we call this global baseline of sustainability-related disclosures, such that we have global capital markets relying on a common language of sustainability-related disclosures such that investors that are making decisions can understand and trust that the information that they're getting from companies around the world is consistently presented and meaningful for them. So that's the structure and why I'm really excited about it. And the ISSB itself was announced in end of 2021, and the full board was in seat by the end of 2022. I joined near the end of 2022. And we're all independent members of the board coming from different roles in the past and representing different perspectives who really focus on, like I said, full-time job is writing and maintaining and then supporting the adoption of the standards globally as well.
1: That point about jurisdictional relationships the IFRS Foundation has does feel really distinctive to me. And I'm really glad you brought it up because when I think about the many different initiatives that you spoke about before, the ability to take a effort like seeking to develop these international baselines and embed it in an existing institution that has those relationships for implementation and distribution of those standards in a way that's linked to accounting feels really, really crucial. One question that I want to ask about is the relationship between sustainability and financial reporting. Being in the IFRS Foundation naturally connects those two. And you guys refer to sustainability reporting really in your own work as sustainability-related financial reporting, which kind of gives us a clue. But can you tease that out a little bit more for our listeners? What about sustainability reporting or sustainability-related financial reporting is similar to other types of financial reporting? And what about it is different?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that there's a different answer today than what I hope will be the answer in the future. But before I answer that, I do want to just make the point that we're talking about the ISSB as part of the IFRS foundation. That said, the standards themselves are written to be gap agnostic, such that a company does not need to be using the IFRS accounting standards to be able to use the ISSB standards as well. So I think that's an important point that we try to make, particularly in the U.S., where U.S. GAAP is what most companies in the U.S. are using primarily. Right. And but that's yeah. generally
1: accepted accounting principles. Is that right? That's, that's right. That's what yeah. GAAP thank you. Yep. Yeah. yeah yep. Thanks.
0: You know, it's funny. You talked about the maze and, and we hear the term alphabet and acronym soup quite a bit. And certainly the sustainability disclosure landscape gets a lot of flack for all of the different acronyms. But in fact, the accounting and assurance world is quite full of their own acronyms, and I'm still getting up to speed on them as well. But but in terms of the connectivity, yeah, you mentioned the fact that we're all part of the same organization now. And I think that's an important signal to the marketplace that we're talking about topics that we believe really do have an effect on companies' prospects and investors really do want this information as they're making decisions on how to lend or allocate capital. So number one, at the organizational level, there's quite a bit of connectivity. But then beyond that, lower down in the process, there are many ways that we're connected as well in terms of sustainability-related financial information and then the financial accounting. in a couple of ways that I'll highlight, one being that even in our standards themselves, we share the same conceptual foundations, as I'll call it, including the definition of materiality and what we consider material information, um, and then also how that information should be presented. So that, I think, is a really critical aspect of what the ISSB standards bring to sustainability disclosures. And then second, the standards themselves. There's a fair amount within the ISSB standards of references back to the financial statements and how you will want to, for example, use the same assumptions in your sustainability related disclosures as you do in your financial statements as well. The standards don't specify a specific place where the sustainability related information needs to be disclosed because jurisdictions will sort of do that differently as it relates to their financial disclosures, but The expectation is that there will be a tie back to that. And like I said, using the same assumptions and and same time periods as well. Now, as I mentioned, I think what's different today is going to be different than how we see it sort of playing out in the future. And the two things that I'm really excited about, and there's a lot of things that I'm really excited about, as you've heard me say, but two things that I'll highlight in the context of your question. One is in the sustainability disclosure world today. I think most people would agree that the data and information that's being provided is not high quality, is not decision useful, is oftentimes out of scope, or maybe you don't even know what the scope is. So one of the things I find really exciting about, especially S1 or first standard, is that it's bringing all of these accounting concepts to the topic of sustainability disclosures in a way that I think will drive more confidence in the data as the data and the information and the descriptions all improve as a result of applying these accounting concepts to this topic. And the second thing, which is a very specific point, but I think is one that further signals the fact that these two things are interrelated in meaningful ways, is that following some period of transition relief, we expect that the sustainability-related disclosures will be Done at the same time as the financial disclosures, further signaling that we're talking about investor relevant information that really is relevant and material to the companies and their future prospects as well.
1: That makes a lot of sense. When you think about accounting, accounting standards also didn't emerge from nothing. It was a long process of developing accounting standards to make them be able to transfer information about companies in a useful way to investors and other decision makers. And so it seems like what you all are doing is in a similar way, providing that same sort of decision, useful, standardized quality language. For this information to be translated to decision-makers, investors, the financial stakeholders. But enough for me on the sort of questions about the the concepts behind the standards, because you guys just released the first round actually this summer. Tell us about what's in there. I know that's kind of a broad question because there's a lot in there, but how would you describe what you all have produced after this long process?
0: Yeah, there is a lot in there. And I just want to comment on something that you said about the past and building on various concepts. As you mentioned, financial accounting is one of those things that's taken many decades to get to where it is now. Sustainability-related disclosures are behind, certainly, and have much ahead of them. But one of the things that was really important here and is really important for companies that are adopting the standards going forward is the fact that it's been built on these voluntary frameworks in the past. Like I mentioned, SASB, TCFD, IIRC, CDSB. So, you know, these aren't entirely new concepts to reporters and investors, but really bringing that accounting discipline to how companies are thinking about it, and also some prescriptive language, particularly as it relates to climate. So what do these standards do? I mean, one, we have two standards that have been released in this past summer. One we call S1, Standard 1, General Requirements Document, and the second is our S2, Climate Disclosures, And the way I describe S-1 is is it really brings the discipline of accounting to this sustainability disclosure landscape. And I think that's really the number one thing that I really like about S-1 and all of those conceptual foundations that I mentioned earlier. But the other thing that S-1 does is that it does require that companies disclose material information about all of their sustainability-related risks and opportunities And that means that it's not just climate, it's not very prescriptive on a particular other topic. It's really saying companies should disclose industry-specific and company-specific information that's relevant to them on whatever sustainability-related risk and opportunity. And it provides some guidance on how to think about that, including saying that companies shall consider, refer to and consider the industry-based SASB standards, which are now part of the library of the ISSB. And then also some other standards or frameworks that they may consider absent any other specific ISSB standard on the topic. So that's really in a very small nutshell, what is in S1, though there's plenty of other resources we have available for people who want to take a a much deeper dive than that. And then S2 is our climate standard, as I mentioned. And basically this is saying for those companies where climate is a relevant topic, these are the uh, disclosures that we believe are relevant for you based on our industry stakeholder consultation and the feedback that we got. And it gives a fair amount of detail in terms of how companies should disclose on their climate related risks and opportunities. And when I say risks, I mean transition and also physical risks. And then also, as I mentioned, their opportunities. And it's not prescriptive in terms of how companies should manage those risks and opportunities. It's not prescriptive in what policies or procedures companies should apply as it relates to their climate work. This is not a performance standard. It is a disclosure standard, and it provides the guidance for how companies should think about them. And it should be done in partnership with S1 in the sense that those accounting fundamentals in S1 are relevant to how companies disclose on S2. So those are the first two that are out there and we're now in the process and will be for the foreseeable future of helping companies and investors understand those standards and apply them as relevant to their businesses over time.
1: I'm interested in the choice of having a general S1 and then a specific S2 for climate. Do you guys foresee potentially in the future having other issue specific standards like an S3 for biodiversity or something like that? Or is there something distinctive about climate where it really needs its own standard in a way that other sustainability standards don't?
0: It's a great question and one that we're exploring right now, actually. And as it relates to the climate standard, when the ISSB was developed, it was made very clear that climate was such an urgent disclosure need that the ISSB should focus on climate first. And so you'll sometimes hear us say climate first, but not climate only. And in fact, we had a public consultation on agenda priorities, where we asked the marketplace to actually provide us input on how the ISSB should focus its time going forward, including the balance of our time and effort focused on adoption of S1 and S2 versus other projects underway. But then we provided descriptions of four projects that we thought, based on our prior consultation and input from stakeholders, was you know probably a good place to focus. And those topics were, as you just mentioned, biodiversity and ecosystem services. So that's one. There's human capital human rights, and then something we call integration and reporting, which is further thinking about that question around connectivity and how companies should consider sustainability-related risks and opportunities and their business value more closely together. So those four topics were open for public consultation, and we've been receiving a lot of feedback on it, and we will be deliberating on that feedback in the coming months such that we will know what we're going to be at least researching on those various topics sometime in 2024, and then determining whether or not to develop standards on those topics going forward. So yes, absolutely more work to determine what comes next in terms of S3, S4, S5, but it's really up to the marketplace on what that topic is and how we think about it. I'll just say one more thing that Regardless of what's happening with that feedback that we get in the agenda consultation and agenda priorities, there's also a lot of other work already underway as well beyond the standards themselves, including the enhancement and maintenance of the existing SASB standards, which play a really critical role in the industry-based disclosures that we're expecting from companies. And then also a large amount of work on capacity building and ensuring that companies have the, you know, knowledge and skills and resources and their partners that support the companies have this knowledge, skills and resources to actually adopt and utilize the standards as they're written.
1: That's actually a great segue, because that's what I wanted to move into next is some of these capacity building questions, really. And I'll start with a design question and then talk about capacity building more directly. So one of the big challenges, it seems for you all in rolling out a global set of accessible sustainability reporting standards is that there's enormous diversity in the potential investors, companies that have an interest in this process. You're trying to build standards that a whole wide range of companies could potentially adopt, starting from radically different baselines, operating in all sorts of sectors. And you have to combine those characteristics also with the rigor that investors want. So how do you make that work?
0: that's a really important question and a really big one. And I think when people sit in one particular part of the economy, they miss the perspective of what's going on in other parts of the economy. And in fact, globally, there are a lot of companies that are not reporting any sustainability related information at all, let alone in a decision useful manner. And similar with investors, there are a lot of investors who know this information is important, but don't necessarily know how to evaluate it in the context of their analysis. So there's really a lot of work that's going on. And and our particular role in this is to develop that common language that companies and investors can use to enhance that dialogue. But to your point, it's not enough really to just write the standards and put them out there. And so we built into the standards in our approach a, a fair amount of what we call mechanisms to support the adoption of the standards and the use of the standards. And that includes things like commonly used terminology and foundational concepts, right? So in terms of using the same accounting fundamentals as are used in financial reporting, so companies are already familiar with that, but also the fact that we're using commonly used frameworks terminology in the sustainability space as well, right? Where we're trying as much as possible not to introduce completely new things where things already exist but really leveraging and building on the track record of things like SASB TCFD and others in a way that we already have some momentum with a number of companies globally. And then the other thing that is built into the standards is you know we have this concept of proportionality and reliefs so that when it comes to various aspects we understand that companies need to pursue those or disclose commensurate with their experience and capabilities and recognizing that that will change over time in many ways, but really needing to start where companies are today. And so an example of that is as it relates to climate resilience and companies communicating to their investors, their resilience to climate related risks, and how they think about that in the context of applying scenario analysis. The standards as it relates to scenario analysis are very clear that this should be done commensurate, like I said, with the company's not only exposure to risk, but also their capabilities to actually do this exercise. And we understand that in many cases, that will be a qualitative versus a quantitative exercise to begin with. And you'll be using information that's available to you at that time and with undue cost and effort. So a lot of that language, which is very standard in financial accounting language already, is built into the standards to really understand that we need to meet companies where they are while moving everyone along to help achieve this global baseline over time.
1: And I want to come back to that moving along matter in a moment here. But I also want to ask I'm sure it's part of this balance that you guys were seeking to strike with meeting companies where they are and moving companies along over time. The drafting process was something where you worked out a lot of those questions, at least to a certain settlement that you could get for this round. So, you know, the final version of standards that you guys issued this summer, it wasn't our first glimpse of those standards. You all issued a draft for comment last summer. And I've looked through some of the feedback myself as part of my own research. You guys certainly got a lot of it. What were some of the major focus of those comments? Where was their consensus? Where was their debate? And how'd you guys adjust to meet the feedback?
0: Yeah, that's right. And that is one of the really important aspects of the way that the IFRS Foundation writes its standards is this public consultation and evaluation of the feedback. And for what you mentioned, we did put out our exposure drafts, as we call them, back in, I think, spring of 2022, and got a combined 1,400 comments on both of the documents. And the role of the board, which really started in July of 2022, And then continued deliberating on those comments and feedback through February of 2023. All of those deliberations, like the letters that we received... Are public. And if anybody wants to go actually watch the, the videos of the board members deliberating, while I don't recommend it, it's certainly there for anybody who's particularly interested. Um, but yeah, we got certainly a, a number of themes coming out of that, some of which I was on the board to deliberate and some of which was deliberated before I joined. But a couple of ones that I'll mention is, you know, the one that we were just talking about, which is proportionality is how we call it, but really a lot of companies and maybe even some investors saying generally support the disclosure standards, but there's no way that we can do this today, or we don't have the capabilities to do this, or this is too expensive or whatever the case is. And that came through in a few ways. And that was exactly what led to our work as it relates to how we wrote the standards themselves, but also the capacity building workstream that is underway today and going forward to support companies getting started. And again, their partners as well, right? Because companies really rely on a lot of partners to be able to do that. So that was one that definitely made its way into the deliberations. And another one that we heard a lot from investors in particular was, and we hear this on a regular basis when we speak to them live as well, is the importance of industry-specific disclosures and company-specific disclosures and making sure that these things are really relevant to the company and its activities. And so that is why we have this reference to companies that they shall consider the industry-based SASB standards and disclose them because this is not a one-size-fits-all approach, right? This is really about what does the entity think is most relevant to it and its business, and in particular, its investors as it's making its decisions. And so that was definitely part of the deliberations as well.
1: It makes sense. And to build on this theme of capacity building that we've come around to in a number of ways, how do you tackle that capacity building task going forward? And what kind of pace of adoption do you guys hope for? Do you have any targets about penetration in jurisdictions or other aspects? I know you guys are consultative bodies, so maybe that doesn't really fit with your approach, but what would you be hoping for in terms of the rollout and adoption of these standards going forward?
0: You know, in terms of adoption, there's a lot of work underway on that. And as I've mentioned, we do have at least a track record as it relates to the accounting standards and the IFRS Foundation that we can sort of rely on and look to. Although I would say that sustainability-related disclosures is relatively new, not just to the marketplace, but also the marketplace regulators as well, right, and sort of their understanding of this and what's needed. And so frankly, we're all learning this language together and it's going to be really important for companies and investors and in different jurisdictions to really get started on this so that we can build this common language and then make improvements and additions over time. Now, as it relates to the timeline, hard to say really all the different jurisdictions have different ways of Mandating the disclosures in their marketplace, so it all looks very different. But I think a couple of key things. One is that, or also this summer, IOSCO, and you can spell that one out for me. International uh,
1: Organization of Securities. I can't remember. Commissioners. You know, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the right. International Organization of Stock Market Regulators. That's, that's what they do. That's
0: exactly right. Yeah, so they announced that they were endorsing the standards and encouraging jurisdictions. To consider them and apply them earlier this summer. And that was a really critical announcement as it relates to many jurisdictions that look to IOSCO to help evaluate various aspects for their own marketplace. And the second thing that I would say is that the ISSB, as part of supporting jurisdictions in that decision making process and adoption process, is creating a jurisdictional adoption guidance document to really support jurisdictions to understand what are all the reliefs, how do they work? What does it mean to be really an adopter of the standards, et cetera? And so a lot of work to try to enable that as much as possible, understanding that jurisdictions have very, very different approaches to doing it. So, you know, I can't say how quickly that'll happen, but certainly we have the pieces in place and we're supporting as much as we can as a standard setter. And then we do absolutely have a very large component of the work that we expect to be really based on voluntary adoption of the standards, particularly in jurisdictions that don't mandate it or for companies or investors that fall outside of the jurisdictional mandates. And here we're really... Building on the track record and momentum of the adoption of voluntary frameworks and standards already, such as SASB and TCFD and IRRC and CDSB, between the four of them, you know, thousands of companies globally are already disclosing, and so any of those companies are already on the pathway as it relates to the ISSB standards
1: as well. Definitely makes a lot of sense. I want to wrap up just by stepping back a little bit, having gone deep into your current work at ISSB, I want to wrap up and get a bigger picture of how that fits into the rest of your career. So you came to the ISSB from KKR. You were managing director for sustainable investing there. Tell us more about how your time at KKR has shaped the way that you approach your work here and how it shaped the way that you think about sustainable investing in general.
0: Yeah, I was at KKR for 13 years. It was a really important aspect of my career and I'm very grateful to the team and miss them quite a bit and, you know, really credit them for enabling me to do a lot of this work in the sense that while I was at KKR, I was also volunteering in a formal way with the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board as early as its development in 2011, 2012, all the way through until it was acquired by the ISSB. So a lot of work, even though KKR at the time that I joined it was really focused on private markets and private equity, recognized that the SASB standards, despite being focused on, at the time, public company disclosures provided a really important tool for investors and companies to understand what were the potentially material topics for them to both manage and disclose upon. And so while KKR now is not just a private equity firm, in the time that I was there, became quite large and quite diverse in its businesses, it really provided an important learning experience for me to understand how do sustainability-related risks and opportunities not only show up in companies, but then how do they show up in the investment process in different ways based on the asset class, right? You might take a different approach to sustainability-related risks and opportunities in your public credit business than you do in your private equity business, just based on the fact that in private equity, you have this longer-term active ownership approach than you do in a case where you have limited influence on a company's performance over time. And that doesn't mean those topics are less important or more important, but it's just a reflection of what can you as an investor actually do and expect as it relates to those topics and as it relates to the asset allocation decision that you make. In the recent years, what we saw across the industry and uh, private equity and all of those different businesses that we were involved in was really this issue where there was a lot of expectations coming toward portfolio companies, a lot of expectations coming toward the asset managers such as KKR, and very little cohesion and certainly not much streamlining as it relates to those expectations. And it was really that that drove me to have this continued interest in the work of the ISSB to really bring my practitioner perspective to helping solve for this problem in a meaningful way such that we'll be able to use really the same frameworks and the same information, regardless of where we're coming from.
1: Makes sense. You can see a way in which, you know, even though efforts like the ISSB are focused on developing standards that when they are adopted as mandates, they're generally in securities markets, in public facing markets. It's still the case that just in the same way that you have accounting standards that are developed formally for public markets, but are considered useful by investors in both public and private contexts. And so we see adoption in private market contexts, even without the sort of disclosure, the public disclosure-related aspect of it, that you could see a potentially a similar journey unfolding in the sustainability world, where these ideas that are developed with public markets in mind initially are ones that investors of any stripe have an interest in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's probably more in common in this case than not in common. And private companies, you know, even if they're privately held, they're subject to many of the same expectations in some way or another, either because major customers are publicly traded, or they are going to be heading toward a public exit themselves, or they're going to be acquired by a publicly traded strategic buyer. I mean, there's many ways that they are subject even to the public company expectations in, in meaningful ways. But then also, I think the a main driver here is that the asset owners or the large pension funds that are invested in these companies via their private equity managers, in many cases, are the same asset owners that are involved with the sustainability-related work with the public equities companies. And it was really just simply a matter of time before they applied the same expectations and data needs to the rest of their portfolio. So in any case, these expectations and data needs are coming to all companies I think what's really exciting about the private market space is that as an investor, you have a really interesting opportunity or platform to drive value through your longer-term active ownership and deep engagement with portfolio companies. But in fact, over time, I think I see more things coming together on this point around sustainability for all companies, private or public.
1: Sounds promising. Last thing I want to ask you is we interview a lot of people who don't have a Wharton connection, but it's always a treat when we do get to talk to somebody who does have a Wharton connection and did the Wharton MBA, just like many of our listeners have done. For current Wharton MBAs who are interested in sustainable investing, what kind of advice would you share for getting into that career, the kinds of places and skill sets that they should be focusing on developing?
0: That is a very great question. And it's interesting because I would answer it maybe differently today than I did the rest of the times that people asked me this when oftentimes my answer was, there are no sustainability jobs today. (laughs) You sort of have to create them. Now that's not the case anymore, right? There's a lot of really interesting roles. And I think the world still needs people who can speak both languages and understand the relevance of topics to businesses and vice versa as well. And so encourage people to continue to understand that you can't really separate social and environmental issues from business success over time, they're really quite interconnected and interdependent. I would say also that there's a real opportunity for subject matter experts today that there may not have been before. Climate is a critical issue, and there's many ways to become a subject matter expert in climate, but also not even around the corner, but in front of us now, we see the need for people who can speak to biodiversity and nature in a meaningful way, in a way that businesses can understand. And then also on the human and social side of things, a lot of work now to understand how can we better engage with, manage our workforce and also the communities and people that are outside of the walls of the organization in a way that is is, uh, beneficial to all. So a lot of really exciting opportunities that weren't here for the 15 years prior that I'd been asked to answer that question. And so a lot, maybe more opportunity than people can even pursue at the moment.
1: And part of that is thanks to the work that folks like you've done in creating a world in which we can have more of those opportunities. So thanks for doing that. And thanks in general for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. Where can listeners go to find out more about the ISSB?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for those kind words. It's obviously something I'm very passionate about. People can find all they want to find and more at IFRS.org. And like I said, we are public about everything. So if you can't find it there, it's because the website uh, is hiding it somewhere else. So please check it out and send us any feedback you have. Really appreciate it.
1: And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Elizabeth for joining. If you like this episode, please spread the good word. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Wharton Current. And in the meantime, stay tuned for our next episodes this fall.